Welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blinka. And I'm your co-host, Aaron. Bad Axe is brought to you by the Podmoth Media Network. Check out the Podmoth Network for more great podcasts. You can also support Bad Axe by joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Pod. There is a link in the show notes. Memberships start at just $1 and we have months and months of exclusive episodes ready for you to binge over there. So please check it out if you want more exciting content. You can also support the show by telling a friend about us, leaving a review, and following us wherever you listen. Now, on to our case. Um, Before we start, I do want to mention that I am sick right now. I have an upper respiratory infection, yet again. I did take a COVID test on Friday. It is currently Monday, and my test results were negative. So hopefully it's not COVID, but um, I might sound a little bit out of breath and uh, I am going to try to edit out any coughing fits. I am out of breath. <laughs> and I am unfortunately coughing kind of a lot. But we didn't want to miss this week, so hopefully this case is really good. Today we're going to West Palm Beach, Florida in December 2017. West Palm Beach is a city in South Florida that's fairly close to Miami. There you can relax on the beach under a palm tree or hit the town for some shopping and dining. It's home to about 100,000 residents and seems like a pretty fun place to live based on their social events calendar on their website, which I thought was pretty cool. Although, in COVID times, maybe a little too exciting. Maybe so, but I mean, in general, it does sound like a fun place. Yeah, they have a lot of of events going on. Also, I want to mention here, I I am vaccinated. I have had Pfizer since like April, so I uh, just want to mention that. Because I know we're in Texas, and uh, Texas has been not the model state. (laughs) We have a bit of a reputation. Yeah, I think only Florida has been more uh, exciting than we have in terms of not doing COVID right. We here have been really dedicated to COVID because I do have asthma, and so I have a tendency to get respiratory infections. So I really played it cool. I did get COVID last year, uh, not from doing fun things. But from getting my car fixed, ironically, I have a Prius and uh, my battery died from not being driven. And they're really expensive. So we didn't want the big battery to die. So we got the car fixed. And that is when I got COVID. Yeah, so uh, not the most exciting COVID story. Hopefully this is not COVID that I have now. Yes, hopefully not. So the test was negative, just saying. Yeah, hopefully that's true and not a false negative. All right. Well, back in 2017, there was no COVID. Great times were happening everywhere. Yep. And 36-year-old Collada Crowell was enjoying a life of love in West Palm Beach. Family members described Collada as a fun, energetic person who was also very kind and generous. Collada dedicated her life to helping others as a caseworker at a mental health facility called Jerome Golden Center for Behavioral Health. As part of her role, she prepared patients to leave the facility and re-enter the world. She treated them just like family members. In fact, just before Christmas, 
She had taken several of the people under her supervision to get free haircuts. In addition to her job as a social worker, Collada had just started her own business. She created gift baskets to sell and planned parties for clients. One of her favorite things to do was celebrating holidays, like literally any holiday. She'd decorate both her home and her workplace for each holiday to bring a bit more joy into everyone's life. So as I learned more about Colada, I just have to say she seems like one of the most amazing people you could possibly imagine. I mean, she was kind, she was generous, she seemed like a bright ray of sunshine for all. And she also really loved her daughter, who we'll meet in a minute. Collada was building a life with her love, Robin Denson. I couldn't find Robin's age, but I do think she was a bit older. Because if you remember, Collada was 36. And Robin does have some adult kids. So I think she might have been about 10, maybe up to 20 years older than Collada. But I couldn't figure out how old she was. The couple shared a home at 822 3rd Street. It was a cute three-bedroom brown and white home. And this was a full house. Crabble had an 11-year-old daughter named Kira Inglet from a prior relationship, and she and Denson were lovingly raising her together. Kira was still in elementary school, about halfway through fifth grade. She was a quiet, kind child who family members say was, was very observant. Kira liked expressing herself through song and dance, so she took dance lessons and voice lessons. She was also very artsy and liked riding bikes with her friends. In addition to the couple and Kira, Denson's adult sons shared a room in the home as well, one of whom was 26-year-old Marlon Larice Joseph. The other brother was his younger brother, Patrick, and a third brother named Patrice also maybe lived in the home. It's unclear from reports, but he was there often enough for him to be on the day of this incident. And additionally, a teenage girl lived in the home as well. Now, Joseph's three children, this is the 26-year-old son of Robin Denson, did spend some time at the house, too. So he had three kids, one of whom is an 8-year-old daughter, and she is going to become important later, so kind of hold on to that information. Now, you'll notice this is kind of a lot of people. It is a three-bedroom house, so I'm not sure how they arranged living arrangements. Maybe some people were there temporarily. I don't know what's going on with that. But it is a very full, jubilant house that was happening here. Absolutely. A lot of people under one roof. Yeah. Now, Joseph had actually just moved back into the home 10 months prior after serving almost a year in jail, and we'll find out why in a moment, Uh, but he had not been there for that long. Now, the whole family was really into church. All of them were very devout Christians, and this did cause some conflict in the family just because both of the women obviously were in a lesbian relationship, which we are like, yay, here at Bad Axe, go you. But some of their family members did not quite approve of that. And I believe this was mostly people who lived outside the home. I know that Kalata's parents weren't very jazzed up about it, but they still loved Kalata and Kara. They weren't, like, judging their daughter. They just didn't have as much acknowledgement as they probably should have. But we're not here to, like, crap on them right now. So that's just kind of the situation is that she still had a good relationship with them, but they weren't maybe around the house as much. Makes sense. But the family was, like, really into church stuff, despite the fact that not everyone thought that they should be lesbians. On Thursday, December 28th, 2017, the joy of Christmas had already faded from the home, although decorations still adorned their house. Spending so much time as a family was wearing down the patience of some family members. Robin and Collada didn't realize it yet, but a simmering pot was about to boil over. 
because Joseph had a bone to pick. He didn't like sharing his home with 11-year-old Kira. He believed Kira had a quote-unquote bad attitude and accused her of being mean to his 8-year-old daughter. Earlier in the day on December 28th, Joseph had actually received a text from his daughter saying Kara had done something mean to her. Now, he stewed about this text because it wasn't the first time the girls had had a conflict and he already told his mom, Robin, that he was going to take care of it if something like this happened again. Now, I want to remind everyone, this is an 8-year-old and an 11-year-old child who are sharing time together a lot. Yeah. There's going to be conflicts. That's it. That's right. That's how kids like, work. That's how kids work. That's yep. literally how they work. Mm-hmm. There's going to be conflicts. Even if they love each other, they can be best friends. It does not matter. There's going to be conflicts. And you just have to, like, talk to the kids. You can't create divisions and freak out on each other. That's right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I also want to point out that I feel like he tries to blame Kira for this. But we don't know what happened. And also, everyone talks about how great of a kid that Kira was and how sweet she was. And we'll see later that she had a lot of friends. And I think it's rude that he tries to make it sound like Kara was this really mean kid when, like, everyone talks about how good of a kid she was. Yeah, for real. And this sounds like normal kid stuff. Yeah, it does. But he's going to escalate it because he's apparently not cool at all. He's just going to really take this to an unhealthy level. So by the time Joseph got home that day, everyone in the household had thought that things were settled down between the girls. The kids had talked about it, and they were playing happily together So there's really nothing to handle at that point. Initially, Joseph went back to his bedroom and it seemed like things might be okay because his family claims that he pulled out his Bible. I don't know if that's what really happened. Remember, the rest of the family is super religious. He pulls out his Bible and starts reading it according to his family. But he wouldn't stay back in his bedroom for long because that day he decided to confront Collada about her daughter's behavior. At around 7 p.m., Robin was supposedly outside the home on 3rd Street, and Collada had just arrived home. She entered the living room where Kira and the other kids were playing. I believe they were all playing, but for sure Kira was there. Determined to confront Collada, Joseph stood and walked out of the bedroom. Determined to confront Collada, Joseph stood and walked out of the bedroom he shared with his brother. He told Collada that he didn't like Kira's attitude, and Collada obviously got upset. I mean, she loves her daughter. Her daughter was a major part of her life, and she wasn't really here for hearing this crap that she's being mean to the eight-year-old. Yeah, for real. So, these two start arguing, and soon they were shouting at each other. But around 7.15 p.m., Joseph decided that words were not enough to solve their problems. So, he pulled a gun and pointed it at Collada. Oh, no. Firing. He shot Collada several times while she was screaming and asking for help. During this, she managed to ask his brother to call 911, but it's unclear how fast he was firing the gun. Now, after he shot her several times in the body, he leveled the gun one more time and shot her in the head. Now, as Collada fell from her gunshot wounds, Kira has witnessed all of this. That's really terrible. She just saw her mom get shot, and she knows what they're fighting about, too. So, Kira runs for her life. She burst through the front door and started running toward a neighbor's house, but Joseph followed. Now, this whole time that she's running, Kira is screaming and she's asking for help, and neighbors do hear what's going on. Joseph's brother follows the two of them because he sees 
Kira run out and he sees Joseph run out and he follows them. This is Patrice and Patrice tries to tackle Joseph and he says that's the first time he saw the gun. Now there's going to be a lot of confusing um, eyewitness testimonies that we're going to hear today because I'm having trouble understanding how you didn't know there was a gun when you heard gunshots. That's a good because point. The neighbors heard the gunshots. Yeah, how did you not hear them when you're yes. in the house, right? And later, several of these family members would say they weren't there after they had, like, given police statements. Um, so keep that in mind as well. We're going to talk about that. Okay. Um, because later they do all say they didn't witness anything after telling the police what they saw initially. Okay. Yeah, so he tries to tackle Joseph, and he almost gets him, but Joseph is really determined. And also, it's important to note, Joseph had previously been a football star, and they talk about this a lot when they're talking about him. And so, I'm wondering if maybe that's how he so easily got away from him. That that could be. I mean, maybe he just mm-hmm. real fast, right? Yeah, and he's supposedly, like, a big dude. He's not, not, like, big as in, like, bulky, but, like, strong and tall. Yeah. Okay, so he gets away. And he pursues Kira. Now, obviously, we have the screaming child. He levels the gun at her and starts firing at her. In total, he fired five bullets at an 11-year-old. That is messed up. Yes. Now, sadly, out of these five bullets, three bullets actually hit her in the head. And at least one hit her in the right forearm. But it's unclear what happened to the fifth bullet. Jesus. Yes. That is just, I don't even know. That's yeah, awful is what it yeah, is. Yeah, she's a child. Yeah. It's bad enough that he shot anybody, but a little kid. Yeah, for real. That's There's, that, there's just no excuse for that. Yes. Now, during the shooting, one of the bullets actually traveled through the window of the home, leaving a bullet hole. So we have like a marker of this horror that has transpired. Now, Robin is supposedly in front of the house during this, and she allegedly witnessed part of the shooting, but then later said that she didn't. Now... Neighbors say that they saw her shouting for help and begging someone to call 911. And she also allegedly ran to one of these neighbors to get help from them. Hearing the shots, the brother who shared a room with Joseph, who I believe is named Patrick. There's a Patrick and a Patrice listed. I am not know for sure if they are both um, the same person or if they're different people because that was unclear. Um, but they are both listed. Okay. That brother ran out of the house to see what was happening. And on the lawn, he saw Patrice there fighting with Joseph, trying to stop him. So it's unclear if if Patrick saw this during the initial struggle or if there was a second struggle for the gun after Joseph shot Kira. And now keep in mind, since the family later said they didn't witness things, some of this information does not get cleared up. Because initial reports say this is what happened, but then... They say, oh, no, we didn't say that, so it doesn't get, like, cleared right. up later. Like, they're going to try to change their story later on. Yeah, that's right. what literally happens. They essentially did not see anything after the police get involved. Gotcha. Well, not initially. Um, they initially are, like, going to the press. But then after, like, charges get filed, that's when they kind of start closing ranks, and we'll see that in a minute. Joseph managed to wriggle away from him again and ran back into the home, still holding the gun. He fired two more shots, possibly inside the home, but that's unclear again if that happened or not because witness testimonies differ about what exactly happened when he got back in the house. What they do know, though, is that he grabbed Crowell's car keys and jumped into her 2012 gray Toyota Camry and fled the scene. When first responders arrived, Kira was still clinging to life. They rushed her to St. Mary's Medical Center where doctors fought to save her. Unfortunately, she passed away from her wounds on Friday morning. 
And that's the morning after the, the crime occurred. Unfortunately, Crowell died at the scene. According to the Florida Times Union, Denson said about them, Collada was the sweetest person. She'd give the shirt off her back to help anyone. She was my girlfriend and that was our home. I loved my son, but I loved Kira and Collada too, unquote. That's really tragic. Yeah, and she said that during a plea that we're going to hear about in a minute for him to come forward because he has escaped in the car, obviously. And you can tell in those first days especially, she was super conflicted because she clearly loved them. And they were basically raising Kira together in a way. But at the same time, I mean, that's her son. So it creates this, like, conflict of what do I do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's torn between all of that. Yeah. So at the, at the beginning, though, the mom is, like, hardcore. We got to get him. Like, he committed this crime. I love them. We gotta, we gotta arrest him. Like, son, you need to turn yourself in. On the night of the murder, several children from the neighborhood walked down to the home to leave flowers for Kira and Colada. A small shrine rose up on the sidewalk in front of the home as a sign of how much mother and daughter were loved. One of Kira's classmates, a girl named Kalita Young, told CBS 12 News, We know that she's dancing in heaven. I know that she's with her mom holding hands in heaven and then God is looking at them, unquote. This is a small child. Very sad. Yes, very, very yeah. sad. They did a couple of interviews in the papers with some of her friends uh, that were, like, so sad to read because these little kids, like, shouldn't have to know what it's like to lose a friend, and yet this is happening to them. Yeah, seriously. It's just horrible. Yeah, it's tragic. Please quickly identify Joseph as a suspect since his mother and brother both said they witnessed parts of what happened. Uh, Again, later, though, they would allegedly say that they did not. Um, There was a problem, though, because police could not find Joseph. The last trace of him after the murder occurred at around 5.40 a.m. on the Friday morning after the murder. He went to a Chase bank to withdraw cash to fund his flight from police. In the meantime, authorities charged him with two counts of first-degree murder, and at that point, a full manhunt was underway. Police even called in the U.S. Marshals to help find him. When they sent out his missing persons report, police warned the public that Joseph was considered armed and dangerous, which makes sense. I mean, if you shot an 11-year-old, I'm not sure that years that you wouldn't shoot someone else. Yeah, for real. I mean, he's definition of armed and dangerous. So. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. When Joseph didn't surface for several days, police became convinced someone was helping hide him. However, they didn't know whom. For days, he remained on the run. And then, on Monday, January 1st, 2018, Robin, who, remember, is Joseph's mother and Kalada's girlfriend, did a press event to plead for her son to turn himself in. She cried as she begged him to come out of hiding. And according to the Florida Times Union, she said, Marlon's son... I love you. You know I love you, but please turn yourself in. If you're scared to do so, call me, unquote. Which I thought was nice. Maybe she would, like, take him down there or something. Yeah, that is nice. One day later, however, they got a break. 
someone used Joseph's credit card at a gas station on South Dixie Highway in Lantana. Now, I just want to say that I feel like it's rude that they still call it South Dixie Highway because we all know what Dixie is code for, and I thought that was not cool. Um, I just wanted to mention that, but that's what the name of the road is. Homicide detectives and the U.S. Marshals rushed to the scene and found their suspect, but it wasn't Joseph using the card. Instead, it was his cousin, Javery Williams. They waited until Williams walked out to an allegedly stolen white BMW before they arrested him. Now, during his arrest, Williams threw the card down and tried to, like, kick it under the car, hoping to get rid of it. (laughs) Yeah. And he also tried to say he didn't know Joseph and he hadn't actually used the card, which police did not believe because they are cousins, so that wasn't that hard to figure out. Yeah, for real. And because he had Joseph's credit card, they suspected that Williams was probably hiding Joseph and had been lying to them this whole time about not knowing where he was. Yep, that seems pretty likely. Mm-hmm. Um, so police resumed police resumed their search for Joseph after they caught Williams. And after two hours, they were able to actually find him. I think he was just in Williams' apartment in Lake Worth. Now, I thought that they were kind of shitty for how they arrested him. Because they basically took him out in, I think, his underwear, which is not cool. Like, I realize he's a fugitive and he murdered someone, but y'all couldn't let him put clothes on? Yeah, you could at least let him put pants on. Yeah, that part was not cool, again. And also, I know we say not cool a lot on here. For me, not cool doesn't just mean, like, casually, oh, no. Yeah. It's like... A severe, like, that's an injustice. Yeah. Um, But it's, like, how I phrase things because of, I'm, I don't know. I feel like a lot of us do that. Yeah. It's common for our generation, I yeah, think. Yeah. And this this was not cool. They really should have let him put clothes on. I thought that was gross, personally. And I just want to mention that, that that was a not cool part of it. Yeah. Anyway, so they did, it did appear that that's what they did. Now, remember, prosecutors had already charged Joseph with two counts of first-degree murder. And at some point, he was also charged with one count of possessing a firearm as a felon. So, um, and we'll find out why he was a felon in just a moment. Um, Judge Dina Kiever Agrama ordered that Joseph be held without bond in the Palm Beach County Jail while he awaited trial. His cousin Williams received a $50,000 bond. It does make sense that Joseph was held without bond to me just because the crime was so serious and he already went on a flight. I feel like that's one of the reasons why they probably held him. Because, I mean, if you try to escape once, you're probably going to try to escape it again. That's right. But I did think $50,000 was kind of a lot for, like, lying about where somebody was. I do kind of wonder if maybe there was more that we just don't know about. Yeah, good question. Yeah, because it didn't say a lot about any other crimes he was accused of, except for allegedly that car was stolen. But fifty grand seemed kind of excessive. But I mean, he wasn't even at the murder. Like, yeah, just it's a, saying. It's a big number. Yeah. Although Joseph was in custody at that point, that didn't change the fact that Collada and Kara were gone. Their families mourned their loss, holding a memorial service for mother and daughter at Christ Fellowship in Palm Beach Gardens on the Wednesday after the murder. Leading up to the trial, Joseph's lawyers claimed he was mentally ill, shouldn't even stand trial. So he spent some time undergoing treatment and supervision. And he spent at least nine months in this treatment, but his trial took a little bit longer than that. So I, I kind of got the impression that maybe it was initially nine months and then later they added on more treatment. At first, Joseph complained to the judge that he wasn't mentally ill and refused to undergo evaluations. And there was a lot of conflict about that. But over time, he did eventually see some doctors. Now, at one point, his lawyer, Frederick Susanak, and his co-counsel, Catherine Mazzullo, 
went to the county jail to consult with Joseph about his competency, and when Susanek asked if he understood the charges against him and the possible consequences, Joseph actually struck him in the face. Then he scratched Mazzullo's face as well. Wow. Yeah, so he attacked both of his lawyers. That sounds unnecessary. Yeah. Susanak suffered a broken nose and busted lip after this assault. And he actually tried to use this as more evidence that his client was mentally ill. I mean, it sounds like there's something wrong with him, but I don't know that he makes him like mentally incompetent to stand trial, yeah. though. I gotta give this defense attorney bonus points, though, for like being punched in the face and then being like, <laughs> see, he's, y'all should let him go. Yeah, he's that, fine. That's dedication to you. Very to your dedicated. Client, yeah. But yeah, it's clearly that something is going on. Like, he seems to have some kind of a rage problem. But his family actually said that they thought he was mentally ill because after the crime, they said that he had been experiencing some kind of delusions. But he never really seems to get diagnosed with any kind of disorder with that. And I think it's hard to to explain how having delusions would have caused this specific murder just because he had told people going up to the murder that he thought that Kira was being mean to the eight-year-old and was he had text showing that the eight-year-old was complaining about Kira, you know, being mean or whatever, or not sharing or whatever it was that he was upset about. And then he was trying to confront the mom. So that's not like a delusion where you, like we did the one case where the kid had delusions and he thought his other kid was a goblin or something. Yeah. And he, like, literally thought he was murdering a goblin because he had severe mental health problems. And I don't think that's the same as, like, becoming enraged too much. Yeah. Like, it's a different thing. Absolutely it is. And, like, this guy had told the mom that he was going to deal with it and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, and, like, he might need treatment, but it's just not the same as being completely unaware of what's going on. Yeah, there's a difference between having some problems and being incompetent to stand trial. Yeah, and we're definitely going to talk more about his problems. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Abigail. We're sisters. And we believe in ghosts. Welcome to Supernatural Sisters, a podcast all about ghostly encounters, bone-chilling monsters, and basically anything that goes bump in the night. Each week, we talk about a haunted place, a legendary monster, or a story that sends shivers down our spine. And maybe we'll talk about the pottery scene from Ghost. He's not a ghost in that scene. There are other parts of that movie where he's a ghost. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And remember, we, we believe, believe you. you. Okay, so during these competency hearings, he even went to, like, mock trials to help him learn what to expect from court proceedings because part of it is just being able to help with your own defense. And so there was a lot of conflict about this because the courts have you do this because that way most people, if they really don't know what's going to, what they're going to do, doing the mock trial helps them learn, like, what they can do to help themselves and what to expect, and it makes them able to stand trial. But the lawyers are trying to say he's not able to stand trial because he's learning to mimic the behaviors in mock trial. And so it's a mimicking, not an actually understanding. Hmm. But it's, that's confusing to me because I'm not sure what exactly they want then. Yeah, exactly. Like, what are you trying to, what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, like, I guess never going to trial, but then, <laughs> I don't know. Kind of defeats the purpose. Eventually, after all these examinations, psychiatrists did find him competent to stand trial. Now, while he was awaiting the trial, prosecutors actually offered Joseph a 60-year sentence if he pleaded guilty, which I think makes sense because this is a very horrific murder and we have a child who died, which is very awful. But at the same time, especially if he has a mental illness, I totally get giving him a, a sentence where he has like some hope in theory of leaving jail and like 
I don't know, just not pursuing the death penalty because I'm honestly not a death penalty person. Uh, I I understand why we have it and I understand why some people support it. And there are definitely scenarios where like if I were a juror in certain situations, particularly like the one murder that took place in, I want to say it's like Westchester, is it? I can't remember. I think it's Westchester. People are listening are going to know. But where the, the rapist guy followed the mom and daughter home from the store and then he came back with his crime buddy and they raped the daughters and then like tied them to their beds and ended up, I think they raped the mom as well. And they lit the house on fire with them like tied to their beds and the mom and daughters all died in the fire after being assaulted, like from the fire and the dad like barely escaped because he had also been beaten severely. And I totally understand why they sentenced that guy to death. Like, yeah, I mean, that's a horrific crime. Yeah, like, I can't argue with them. I mean, <laughs> like, that's what the family wanted. So it's like, okay. But me personally, I'm not a death penalty person. So I totally get the 60 years because I feel like that's like a long sentence, but it's not like, like, it kind of reflects the fact that he might be a little bit damaged. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. It but does. that what he did is just so horrible. Yeah. However, he did turn down this offer. That sounds like a mistake. Yeah, that sounds like it. And this is Florida. So <laughs> Florida is like probably the only state that has a worse reputation than Texas for like death penalty stuff. Do they though? I don't know. It seems likely. I think like, so. I don't have the data, but it seems pretty likely to me. I feel like living in Texas, it just feels like everything. It feels like Florida and Texas are like constantly in competition to see who can <laughs> who can dick people over the more. So I don't really know. I feel that's my opinion, but it certainly seems. So that way, I don't. Yeah. I would definitely would not have gone to trial with this. My personal opinion. Joseph's trial finally began in February 2020 with a jury of six men and six women. Now keep in mind the crime had occurred in December 2017, so this had been a little over two years since the crime. At his trial. Defense attorneys argued that he had a mental illness that caused him to kill Collada and Kira, and they said he had paranoid delusions and fears that caused him to shoot. The defense also argued that Joseph wasn't even guilty. Oh, really? Yeah, like as a part two, I had to read that multiple times. So it's like both he's he's having mental illness, but also he just didn't do it. Really? Yeah, he didn't do it. And they tried to say there wasn't evidence he did it because police never recovered the gun. And also, it appears that his family members at that point had said they didn't witness any part of the crime. So, the defense was trying to say there are no witnesses. Right. So, basically, the family, like, closed ranks to protect him somehow? Yeah. One thing that was weird reading about this is that, ironically, his mother and siblings really make him seem, like, more personable, if that makes sense. Like, obviously, what he did is really terrible, but his family loves him so much that you almost like understand their perspective on it and then you look back at Colada and Kira this was like a case though that was really kind of hard to kind of draw that line in some ways for me like I don't really feel sorry for the killer at all like just being real like I personally think this guy did something monstrous and I think he would probably do it again and then we're going to talk about something in a minute that makes me think that he does have problems not harming someone in the future but at the same time, like, his family seems like such a good family, and they really do just, like, genuinely love him, even with this. And in a way, it made it harder to see him get this murder trial stuff. Like, he definitely needed to go to jail, but I really think that he should have taken the plea. Yeah. After listening to the testimony and evidence, the jury found Joseph guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and one count of being a felon in possession of a firearm. 
And at the sentencing trial, his defense attorney asked the jury to be less harsh because he wasn't as bad as a serial killer. That's probably not the argument you want to make. They actually did argue that. And this was the part that made me throw up in my mouth. The attorney even tried to claim that Kira didn't suffer that much because she was probably unconscious after the first headshot. Oh, God. For realsies. Man, these attorneys are not very good. No, I kind of wondered if it's like the problem is is that they aren't good at feelings. (laughs) You know, like a normal person doesn't hear of an 11-year-old running from the house in fear of her life and think, oh, well, the first headshot knocked her out. Like, that. this was not that bad. That's not, what the fuck is wrong with you? That's not. Yeah, for real. Like, I don't even know how you get that out of your mouth. I know, that's, it's flabbergasting. I do understand that, you know, they have to do the defending, um, the defending, rather. But I don't understand, some of the stuff they come up with in these cases, I'm just like, how does your brain work, hun? Like, mm-hmm. do y'all have, like, a network where you can go to? For people, I mean, is is there a support group for crazy people, or, or is there not a, crazy people, but for like sociopathic lawyers or something? I guess, shit? or like some kind of network where they're like, "Hey, I've got this client. What non-horrible thing? Like, <laughs> or what horrible thing rather should I say that makes it sound less bad? Like, I don't even know. Right? Like, just the it makes me wonder about them though, because I don't know how they thought that was gonna be relatable to anyone. Yeah, for real. And you're like, oh, you're right. Totally. Did you think about that? They also, at this point, tried to present him as a loving family man and father of three. His family told stories about him, and the jury looked at photos of him with his family and playing high school football. Now, it took me a minute to wrap my head around the football thing, because he's 26, and he had not played football for, like, almost 10 years, because he actually did not play football all of high school because he didn't have great grades, which his family does say is from a learning disability, which might be true. But that means that he literally had not played football in like 10 years. But they trotted out all kinds of football stuff and articles and a whole coach to talk about what a great dude he had been. Wow. I'm not trying to say there's nothing redeeming about him, obviously. And I feel like his family actually, out of all the murderers that we've covered, did make me be like, oh, this dude might have had a future at some point. But the reality is, is that he had done some bad things. And not just these murders. We're going to get to something in a minute that I've saved. It's not that big. I feel like I'm making it sound really big. (laughs) It is big, but it's not as big as maybe I have made it sound because I've been not telling you this the entire podcast. Because during the sentencing, the prosecution came up to argue against the idea that he was just this really great dad who, like, always did the right thing and loved Jesus and, like, never did anything wrong. Because, remember I told you he had gone to jail for almost a year. And also, you probably noticed from his, like, charges that he had been a felon before. Yep. Well, guess what he did as his felony? Something violent, I'm going to guess. It actually was not violent. Um, it was kind of, though, in its own way. Because let me tell you what it was. So, in 2013, he had actually been caught having an inappropriate relationship with a 13-year-old child. Oh, While no. he was 22 years old. Oh, God. Yeah. And so, he got convicted of battery to a child. Um, because of this very inappropriate relationship that he had with them. And I do believe it was sexual because they felt the need to explain the sexual consent laws before they discussed this crime that he did. Yeah. So he did something sexual with a 13-year-old when he was 22. And that is really bad. That's really, really bad. Super bad, y'all. Yep. Like, statutory rape all the way and just totes wrong. Yes, it is. So keep that in mind um, as you consider 
does he do all the right things ever? Clearly not. Like, I want to say, I, in my opinion, it feels like his family wants to present this as one tiny oopsie, which, like, murdering two people, especially a child, is not oopsie. Yep. But having had a sexual relationship with a 13-year-old child as a grown-ass man is also really bad. Yes, it is. During the sentencing hearing, Kenneth Crowell, who is Collada's father and Kira's grandfather, asked Joseph several times why he had taken their lives. And, of course, Joseph never responded. Um, the dad did kind of break out and yell that he was evil, which I totally get because, honestly, it amazes me that these people make it so long during the trial without screaming stuff at the people. Yeah. Like, I really think that sounds like a total feat just to sit there through the trial and not yell things. <laughs> yeah, for real. When it came time for the jury to decide Joseph's punishment, they unanimously voted to recommend a sentence of capital punishment. It seems a little bit harsh, but... Because he might have I mean, that mental illness. Yeah, for real. I mean, it, it's definitely harsh, but... I mean, I, I, mean, I kind of get it. I feel like the thing is, though, is what he did to Kira. Chasing her outside with her being so afraid and having seen her mom shot, knowing that he was going to shoot her, and then shooting a, an 11-year-old five times is just so bad that I feel like a lot of people couldn't get over it. I, I think that's exactly what happened. And I don't think they necessarily care if he's mentally ill or not. And I, I think that because they never release any kind of, like, diagnosis that that explains it, you know? Yeah. And, like, for me, I, I meant to go over this during the trial part, but I think part of the problem with his own mental illness claim is not just the premeditation part that we talked about, but telling his mom that he was going to confront Kalata and that he was going to handle this and, like, having the text thread and all that stuff that sh- clearly shows motive and planning and all that stuff, and, like, a concrete, real-world reason why he's trying to shoot them. But then, in addition to that, he ran off and, like, hid for four days. And if you're mentally ill, we've talked about this a lot, every single case we've covered, or that I've read about, or that I've watched something about, that has a, a person who is mentally ill and committing the crime because of mental illness, they don't run away and hide after they commit these crimes. Yeah. Because they don't realize what they did is bad. Exactly. Like, they just don't. Yeah, and like running they, away and hiding is a, an indication yeah. that you know you did something wrong. Especially right after it. And, like, I could totally understand if he'd had, like, a long time to come out of a fugue or something. Like, if he'd been at the house and he'd had, like, 48 hours. Not 48 hours. If he'd been at the house alone with her, had murdered somebody, and then had waited a while, and then, like, woke up and was like, oh, crap. Like, my crazy self murdered this person this is awful i better run away that i might could see that but like immediately after the crime like essentially during the commission of the crime he ran out yeah it's hard to believe that you were having some kind of like delusion in that moment agreed and hiding for four days yep so that of course is how the jury decided i don't think it's really it is florida so i guess it kind of makes sense (laughs) yeah and although i think it had been like two decades since they had sentenced someone to death wow which is kind of impressive Indeed. Now, this is just the jury's recommendation, though. The judge still had to affirm it. So, they had to wait a long time. Originally, he was supposed to go back April 2020, but as we all know, COVID hit, and so he had to wait to get his actual sentencing. So, in November 2020, they were back in court, and Circuit Judge Cheryl Caracuzzo sentenced Joseph to death for the murders. The judge also gave him an extra 15 years in prison for possession of a firearm by a felon. And um, she seemed legit mad. Like, she was super mad about this case. And I have some really exciting quotes from her. 
According to the South Florida Sun-Sentinel, as she handed down the sentence, Caracuzzo said, quote, There can be nothing more terrifying for a child than knowing that someone has just shot their mother multiple times and now was coming after them. There is no doubt that this panic-stricken little girl experienced a level of terror that no child or no one should ever have to endure, unquote. And she also added during her speech, and this is a part that people have really, like, enjoyed that, like, are super angry about this case. Um, and so I thought I would include it. She said, quote, Marlon Larice Joseph, you have not only forfeited your right to live among us, but under the laws of the state of Florida, you have forfeited your life, your right to live at all, unquote. Damn. And I was like, I know. She was mad. Yeah. I think it's I I think if you had sat through the trial, honestly, remember these people have to look at the photos. Yeah. Like the judge and the jury have to look at those. Oh, that's probably why. If I had to look at the photos of, a, of an 11-year-old who was murdered, I feel like I would probably vote I don't think I'd be able to make a rational choice for that. Yeah, you'd be mad as hell about it. Maybe they should have different juries. Oh, from the sentencing and for the trial. Yeah, maybe they did. They didn't it seemed like it was the same jury based on reporting. Yeah. That makes sense, though, because I feel like, just being real, if I had sat through the trial and had to look at the murdered bodies, I would have been, like, like, burn it all to the ground. Yeah, I mean... It, yeah, it, I don't think I could make, like, a... Yeah, it's hard to be lenient. choice. It's hard to be lenient when you're looking at a picture of a murdered child. Yeah. I, like, I assume. I've never been in that position. Yeah, but, I don't want... Please don't send us that. Yes, please don't. We don't, we don't want that no. in our lives <laughs> no, at all. Don't. Yeah, so... I now that makes sense because literally I've been sitting here like if he's mentally ill like this seems like a lot like he I do believe his family like he seems to have had some struggles and like it's weird because there were there were people who talked about nice things that he had done and like don't get me wrong like I'm not trying to I feel like his family does a good job at, at really making you feel sorry for him even though he did this heinous horrible thing and deserves and deserves to be in prison but they definitely had me feeling like he should have gotten the 60 years. But I kind of understand, like, thinking about it from the jury's perspective. If you had to look at those pictures and, like, really see firsthand, I could I could definitely see this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one that, it was like, it was like a harder case than I thought it was going to be when I was researching it. Just because I saw Kalata and Kara and I was like, oh my god, I want to talk about them. Like, these poor women, or not women, this woman and this beautiful girl. And, like, they're just like seriously some just amazing people just doing these great things in the world especially like remember Claude is a social worker and she was starting all these new programs like not even think like she was going beyond her job and you know how social workers are overworked and they're generally underpaid and yet she's like going beyond what's asked of her to do all these amazing things to help people and then she's murdered yeah for like literally no reason yeah it's terrible it's just terrible and so I wanted to talk about them and then like it's just been like weird because I, I don't, I do not feel sorry for him. Like, please like listeners do not come at me and be like, Oh my God, she felt sorry for a killer. I don't, I think it's more just like you see him as a person and how his family sees him. And I really feel sorry for his family, Yeah. especially Robin, because she loved all of these people involved. And like, after he gets sentenced, there's a video you can watch and she's crying like so hard because like it's her baby and she like loves him. And so that obviously is very traumatic. But then she also loved Kalada and she loved Kira, like one of her own kids. So it's like it's just really shitty for her. Oh, yeah. Like, I really feel sorry for her for this. Indeed. Although I do kind of wonder if maybe the reason why he kept getting into these troubles is because his family, like, never seemed to, like, hold him accountable for anything that he did. Like, no offense to them. Like, I get it. It's hard. But maybe if, like, they had, like, 
not been so accepting of him, maybe he would have not been as spirally. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I don't know. It's hard to say. But, I mean, I just wonder. Now, because he received a death penalty, Joseph's case automatically went on appeal, and his lawyer and mother both argue that he shouldn't receive the death sentence because he's mentally ill. Um, his mother actually claimed that him turning down that 60-year plea deal was evidence that he was mentally ill. And because obviously that you know they live in Florida, I mean it does not take long. It doesn't take much to figure out what's going to happen here. Yeah. And she said that normally he quote unquote would not hurt a fly, but again he did have sex with a thirteen year old, and I have trouble understanding how that's not hurting a fly. Indeed. After the sentencing, Kalada's cousin Kevlin Frederick told CBS Twelve News, "quote It's not bitter. It's not sweet. It's neither one. We can't get back what was taken from us." Unquote. And that was the main quote that I had found from her family that I thought really encapsulated what happened. That, like, you kind of get to the end of this trial. It's not like it brings any kind of closure or anything like that. It's just, like, they're still gone. Yeah. I mean, it's a haunting quote, but it's very appropriate. Yeah. It's just it's just really sad. So that's the story of Collada Crowell and Kira Inglet, two very beautiful souls who were taken much too soon. We hope that you enjoy getting to know them today. If you would like more exciting content from Bad Axe, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash pod. Remember, memberships start at just $1, and we have a lot of bonus content over there for you to check out. And you can always read the description to see if it's something that you're interested in listening to, but there's uh, several different cases already available. Also, if you could rate us and review us and subscribe, that would be awesome. We did get a couple of more reviews, so thank you so much. I need to check it again. It's been a few days since I checked. You can connect with us by following us on social media at BadAxePod. We are most active on Instagram, so please keep that in mind. If you use all of them, Instagram is your hotspot. You can send us comments, feedback, fan mail, whatever it is, at BadAxePod at gmail.com. And then, Aaron, please tell them about our website. We have a very cool website. It's BadAxePod.com. Go check it out. Thank you so much for listening. We can't wait to see you again, and I hope... That my upper respiratory infection did not impede things too much. I think you were, you were great. Okay. As always. Oh, thank you. All right. Thank you, listeners. Bye-bye. Bye.